the raw number of people working is, is still below the pre-pandemic peak, or it might be like just getting back to it. And if you were to sort of trend the pre-pandemic numbers and then look at how far below we are that trend line, we're probably six, seven, eight million jobs below that. So there's still, even though the unemployment rate is low, there's still probably six or eight million people not working that would otherwise be working had it not been for COVID. This is Michael Ring. I'm a cattle and crop farmer from Northern Illinois and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we have a man named Phil McAllister. I really didn't know very much about him. Ben Anderson said he was an optimist and had different perspectives than me on the economy. And so I thought, hey, that'd be great. I would love to talk with somebody that has some perspectives. And uh, I was absolutely astounded by this interview. It is enjoyable. We talk about everything from inflation and how quickly that's going to go up. Does it come down? What's going on with the supply chain? We end up talking about the stock market and how the Fed um, ends up impacting everything from housing prices to um, the risks that people are willing to make. And I really feel like this is one of those conversations that if you're really well versed in the economy, you're going to find what Phil is saying very nuanced and um, and interesting. And if you don't know very much about economics, we do break down a lot of concepts as best we can to make this uh, something that anybody can understand, even if you're not particularly interested in banking or the Fed or the stock market. So I really hope you enjoy this. You probably noticed I am crazy busy. We are doing a build out of the Legacy Interview Studios. If you're interested in having me do a private interview to talk with one of your loved ones about the five areas of their life, their childhood, their career, their marriage, parenting, and the legacy that they want to leave behind, then you can go to articulate.ventures and book an appointment. We are now uh, booking out in-person events for uh, June. So if you'd like me to do one of your uh, loved ones, just make sure you sign up soon because they are going fast. All right, without further ado, let's go to my interview with Phil McAllister. Phil McAllister, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Vance. Thanks for having me. So you came to my attention because my executive producer, Ben Anderson, said you are one of the rare uh, positive uh, uh, outlook people on the uh, economy. And he thought this was so rare and so unusual that he thought we'd have a good discussion. So maybe just to start off, what do you think the state of the economy is right now? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, I mean, I think positive or, or how you frame if somebody's positive about the economy is probably a relative term in a lot of ways. Uh where we're at right now, but I think you know what we're facing right now is a situation where all of the things that were really great about the economy, you know, over the past two years, are all kind of facing the other direction, kind of all at once. Um, you know, when it comes to inflation raging, or everybody sees the latest prints and thinks that it's raging, I think that's probably more or less seen its peak, and it's probably headed the other way. Um, and I also think that's going to be accompanied with you know, slower GDP growth as well. So I think, you know, to this, to the effect that I'm a contrarian at all, it's probably just that I see the economy heading back to sort of that slow inflation, slow growth mode that we had been in over the past 10 years, um, rather than kind of seeing the, the crazy stuff that's been happening over the last two. So when you think that inflation is going down, uh, like uh, a lot of people right now that have that sense say, hey, we've hit peak fuel prices, you know, gas isn't going to go up that much higher, and then it starts to go down. And then prices start coming down as a result of that. Is that kind of where you're at? Or what other signals do you have that inflation is going to slow or peak? Yeah, so I mean, I, I would probably take it back first to thinking through like what actually causes inflation and what, you know, if you get that right, then I think you have a better idea of understanding why, you know, or why, at least in my opinion, why I think it's kind of starting to head the other way. So if you think about it, really, there's four different ways you can get inflation. You can get 
you know, demand outpacing supply in the real economy. Um, people just wanting to buy more stuff than the economy can make at a given point. You can have supply come down relative to demand, like for whatever reason, people just can't make enough stuff at the time. Um, and then you can have monetary variables as well. You can have, you know, the demand for money going down, like people just don't want money. They don't think it's worth anything. So they want to give it up for something else. Or you can have the supply of money go really high and without any more goods and services being produced, um, which is what people would say, like when the Fed prints money, right? Um, I think when people try to pin all of this inflation on the Fed, they might be a little bit, you know, misunderstand or not misunderstanding, but but they're they're missing the broader picture of what's been happening with inflation. Um, you know, if you think back to what happened in 2020-2021 with, you know, COVID hitting and then the massive massive amount of fiscal stimulus, the PPP loans, the enhanced unemployment benefits, uh, you know, the eviction moratorium, all that stuff together just, you know, jammed all this money into the economy all at one time. Nobody cared whether or not you actually needed it. It was just like, hey, stuff the money in there, get people spending and, and hope that it kind of bounces things back. And at the same time, you had less people working. The people that were working had to, you know, be spread apart and for safety reasons and for whatever other reasons couldn't work at full capacity. So you had that demand you know, jump at the same time as supply was being suppressed. So the natural outlet would be higher prices in that regard. And that's exactly what we had happen. Um, but now you look at it and all of those things are pointing in the other direction. Um, and then to kind of address the Fed piece of it really quickly. Wait, when you say they're all headed in the other direction, what do you mean by that? So PPP loans are gone. The child tax credit's gone. Uh, eviction moratoriums are being lifted. There's no more enhanced unemployment benefits. There's no more stimulus checks coming. That's all been kind of pushed through the system. And you did have that like one time sort of elevation in price levels that you've seen. But now, you know, people are getting back to work. Supply chains are healing. Um, all of those, you know, demand factors, the artificial demand factors that came from the government are gone. And then if you look at sort of the fundamental underpinnings of demand, you look at real disposable incomes down. You look at, you know, final sales, the last GDP number was really rough. Um, you know, it went from estimations at the end of the year, estimations for first quarter GDP were like four or five percent from some economists. And then over the course of the quarter, it just kind of slowly tailed down to the point where we saw a negative print. And yeah, some of that has to do with inventory numbers and things like that. But I mean, all of those sort of fundamental, you know, underpinnings of where the consumer's at. You look at consumer confidence is just in the tank. Small business confidence is, is as bad as it is in recession. So, um, you know, it's hard to see where, you know, all this new demand is going to come from going forward um, now that sort of the, the temporary kind of demand has gone away. Um, and then obviously the supply side, you still have problems in China with COVID and there's the Russia-Ukraine situation that kind of is, is making things a little bit wobbly. But in general... You know, businesses are making their products. People are back to work. They're figuring out ways to get around these issues. So I think both of those two key factors that were influencing inflation are both pointing in the other direction now. So then that really just leaves sort of the Fed and whether or not you think the money printing is is causing the inflation, which we can kind of dive into next unless you want to cover anything else on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely interested in that. I think maybe before we go there, <laughs> it's it's very good for us to talk about supply chain because from my vantage point, it seems as though uh, many of the supply chain issues that people thought were going to clear up haven't cleared up at all. You know, if somebody's going to buy furniture right now, it's 26 weeks out, and that's on rather, rather run-of-the-mill things. If you look at um, 
um, egg prices, they continue to rise. If you look at um, little brackets that go on um, to build a, a hoop house for greenhouses, things that are incredibly simple, just very slender pieces of metal with a hole punch through them. You can't even get those. So from my perspective, the uh, if I look at just a, a, a wide basket of things that people are trying to get, they seem to be very difficult and those don't seem to be alleviating. And I don't think you can pin all of those on China, you know, because egg production is domestic. You know, you don't need the tin snips to come from from China. So to me, the supply chain is really still backed up. It is and it'll continue to be. Uh, what I'm kind of more referring to is sort of in rate of change terms, all of the the steep increases are gone now. We've sort of found a new level. And over time, you know, even if even if production kind of stays where it's at now, as demand kind of falls off, you know, incrementally from here on out, that rate of change is going to be to the positive. But it doesn't mean the problem's going to be solved anytime soon. I just think, you know, month over month, things get a little bit better and a little bit better so that, you know, an inflation number in the eights comes into the sevens and the mid sevens and the low sevens and the sixes and so on. So it's still going to be high, higher than we're used to seeing. But in rate of change terms, it's going to start heading in the other direction. Whereas, you know, a, a, a big contingency of the crowd out there thinks it's kind of going to be runaway inflation from here on out. Whereas I think it's sort of going to just normalize over the next few months, if that makes sense. Yeah. And when you think about that, then do you think that prices will then go lower? Does that mean there'll be pressure on them to like decrease? Or are you just saying, hey, we just won't in continue the increase of prices that we've seen? It's possible. I think you have to allow for the possibility that there could be true outright deflation at some point. Like if a economic recession gets bad enough, you know, I think the odds of a recession have been building over time. You can never, you know, say for sure that something like that's going to happen until you see, you know, more evidence come out over time. If there is a really deep recession and the Fed keeps raising rates right into it, you know, something like that could cause like true outright price deflation. Um, but I think that my sort of general main thesis is really just the idea that, yeah, it's going to start to normalize over time, and it's going to, and we're going to find ourselves back in that same. One, one and a half, two percent inflation kind of growth numbers, um, which are driven sort of by our longer term fundamental demographic and, and debt problems that we've got going on. Man, you are a contrarian. You may be the <laughs> only person I've spoken to in the last year that believes that inflation will stay at, or, you know, return to one to two percent. Yeah, no. And like I said, not not overnight. I, I think as the year rolls on, you'll start seeing it in the maybe. You know, making up a number because I don't have a crystal ball, but I think you'll start seeing it. You know, travel into the sevens and the sixes and the fives by the by the end of the year, and then you know this time next year, when those CPI numbers are have, are going to be comping year over year to the base that was this crazy March and April. That's right around the time where I think you'll probably start being back into that two three percent range that we're more used to seeing. So, yeah, definitely don't think it's going to be like, hey, we're going to wake up one day and the CPI is going to surprise everybody by being you know two percent or something when everybody thought seven. But um, I think that's just kind of the way the the way the arrow's pointing. And so, when you look at the Fed actions, what do you see um, has been the the result of what they've done so far, and where do you think they're headed? Yeah, I mean, so the Federal Reserve, I think, is poorly understood. Um, well, I shouldn't say that because I am i don't necessarily know any better than anybody else, but the way that I think about it is different than the way a lot of other people do. Um, I think a lot of people think that they are these like wizards on high that are 
carefully controlling the economy and pulling every lever and making sure that, you know, the right amount of people are employed and the price. Yeah. But I don't think they have that much control. Can I give you what my impression is? Yeah, absolutely. My impression is that they are an extremely hierarchical organization where there is one or two uh, small groups of people that have a single lever that they can um, push all the way down or bring back to zero, but there's no reversing it, right? So they, they can they can um, put more money into the system. Maybe you could say they have two levers, they because they can change what the interest rate is on that printing of the money. But that there's not only is there no wizardry, it's the, the gears that they have are predominantly bully pulpit and uh, signaling to people how expensive it is to denominate things in the dollar, but that's all the power they have. And everything else they do is public relations. All the vice presidents they have, all the analysts, all of that is designed to be um, smoke and mirrors is probably an unkind way to say it, but in my opinion, probably accurate. No, I totally agree. I totally agree with you on that. Um, and, and they don't even have the right tools for the job. I mean, even the interest rates that they can control, they can control the short-term interest rate that banks lend to each other overnight, but they still don't even really control you know, once you get to the 10 year treasury or further out from there, that stuff is controlled more by the expectations for inflation and GDP growth in the economy. So, you know, a good example of that would be like 2018, October of 2018, Fed raises rates, the 10 year treasury is at three and a quarter. People all around the world are saying the treasury is going to go to four, it's going to go to four and a half, we're in a new regime. Well, what actually happened was the treasury, the 10 year treasury went from about three and a quarter in October of 18 to about 150. Uh, by the time the middle of 2019 rolled around. And this was when the Fed still said they were going to be hiking. They said there was going to be four more hikes in 2019. They hiked again in December and changed it to three hikes in 2019. And then by March of 2019, they said, ah, just kidding, we're not going to hike anymore. And then they were cutting by the middle of 2019. So, like, Yeah, which means that their power was, was uh, jumping in and saying, spend your money today because it's going to be, you know, take out your loans, do everything you can right now. So they're trying to front run the economy and just keep pushing it until eventually people say, well, you know, maybe what you're saying isn't true. And then so they have to put it up just a little bit. <laughs> um, to make everybody believe we can do this, but I, I don't think they have any intention of putting up the in interest rates um, to try and scale back inflation. Yeah, and, and and I don't even think that they really can control the broader economy or the un, the unemployment rate nearly as much as, as people want to believe they can either. I mean, raising a short-term interest rate can make it harder for people to borrow certain types of money, and it can be, make it harder for banks to lend money because their cost of funds relative to what they can get for it can change. And that can you know change growth rates a little bit and stuff like that. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of these employment decisions are made by, you know, entrepreneurs in the market trying to figure out what price signals are telling them and where things are going. And it's just so much more complicated than the Fed. And they're not, you know, it's not like they're raising rates. So this is going to happen or they're cut rates and that's going to happen. I think that's just sort of an oversimplified, you know, like you said, just kind of jawboning about that kind of stuff rather than what, what you could actually like find in the data. So yeah, when I look at banking, one of the things that I didn't understand until I dug into it more is that a bank has deposits. So people come in and they say, Hey, keep my money safe. And, uh, and in exchange for this, give me you know a small percentage of interest, which hasn't been anything for 20-something years. I mean, you're a fool to leave your money in a savings account because it's just going to get burned off to inflation. But right. that bank, that's the lumber that they have to be able to go out and build stuff, right? This is the raw materials they have with deposits. But because that interest rate has been so low, then they have the, like the more money they have in deposits, the more liabilities they have because they still have to pay um, interest rates out to those people that have deposited that money. 
So they, you know, pushed that lever down and they pushed it down so far that uh, their normal investors and their requirements from from their federal regulations and state regulations um, make it so they're not actually able to, they've lent to basically everyone they can. And now the only people they can loan to is through the Small Business Association, the SBA, which is where you get to make a loan. Somebody comes to the bank and they say, hey, I want a loan. And the bank gives it to them, lending with their own money. But 80% of that loan is guaranteed by the government, which means the risk profile is nowhere near the same. And many of those banks specialize in either doing the loan processing, which is a complex thing because you got to be able to do the DMV style, get in line, put this paper here, this document there. And then if um, once you get those loans uh, taken care of, most of the time people push them into a secondary market. So they take that money. Um, that they've just lent out as an SBA loan, and they say, "Hey, who wants to buy this? We'll trunk, we'll tr- bundle all these together and sell them." And so, so much of what the lending is going on right now is uh, hyper um, uh, impacted by the the government I- in intervention through the SBA lending. Right. Yeah, and it's it, it has a lot of rhymes with uh, the dot or not the dot com bubble, but the housing bubble era, right, where you had people lending because they could offload a lot of the risk to the agencies through the government and they could take the fee income that comes from that and then just kind of put the risk off on somebody else. So, you know, and it's the same the same thing with the SBA now. And it's one of those things where be, because of the debt problems, the demographic problems that we have, we have this slow growing economy. And in slow growing economies, you have kind of crappy GDP growth, you have low inflation, and there just aren't a lot of lending opportunities. So for these banks that have these big balance sheets, and you know, they're never going to be allowed to, you know, fail or go under. So they've got to find some way to deploy that money. And it just funnels itself into the, you know, those areas where they could offload the risk and kind of skew it in their favor that way. So and and I think, you know, it's almost like uh, water finding its path, you know, to the easiest way for it to flow and it's just it's going to go that way it went to housing last time now it's you know going to find other ways to, to work its way into the economy so i think you're spot on on that so what do you think uh the fed is actually going to do i remember reading something on your Substack back in january where you didn't think they were actually going to raise rates and then they did just not very much i mean depending on where you're sitting they either raised them a lot or didn't raise them very much but you're in real estate so to you um, these lending rates actually do matter because that's going to show up in mortgages. That's going to show up in, you know, what is it going to cost for me to buy a house? How wide, you know, how, how big is my budget? Um, do you think that the raise that they just made was very big? And how much do you think, how long does it take to show up into the market? Yeah, so a couple of things on that. I mean, I think a lot of the raise that they did, they talked about it so much that if you looked at like the the two year treasuries, a really good example of that because a two year, it's a short enough term that it's going to trade a lot closer to some of those other short term rates. So like a three month treasury is going to be like pinned to the federal funds rate pretty closely because there's going to be arbitrage opportunity if it, if it's not. Um, but the two year treasury that yield started shooting up before the Fed ever started hiking because the market just started discounting the fact that it was probably going to happen. Um, the tenure didn't move up very much at all uh, for a while until the Fed actually did start hiking. And even then, I don't think that like the tenure treasury moves very much with the Fed. I think that went up because Russia-Ukraine happened and some traders temporarily thought that, you know, rates were going to go up there. Uh, and just the whole inflation outlook changed pretty dramatically when you know oil prices shot up and food prices shot up and all that kind of stuff. But I was definitely wrong about thinking that the Fed wouldn't hike much. I thought it was going to be like 
a 50% chance or so that there'd be no hikes, maybe 25% would be one and done, 25% would be two and done. So now, you know, they've basically done their two. Um, so, you know, if they raise again, I'm already wrong on that opinion. But what I was, the reason I was thinking of that is because historically speaking, the Fed's been pretty beholden to financial markets and they've been more interested in kind of, you know, listening and watching what's happening and then kind of reacting sort of the same way they did in 2019, right? 2019, they claimed they were going to hike until the 10-year treasury started dropping and economic activity started slowing down. The stock market got a little wobbly and then they were like, yeah, just kidding, guys, we're not going to do it. So I thought that was going to be the same case here because as I was looking at economic activity through the end of the year, Again, you're seeing GDP start to roll over. All those big spikes in income were rolling over. Um, you know, all of the sort of leading indicators on the ISM numbers and the new orders. Everything was starting to slow down. You know, and in rate of change terms, everything in the economy just moves in cycles, right? So as the rate of change was peaking and heading the other way, you you, you know we could see that the economy was probably going to start slowing down a little bit. And I thought the Fed was going to see that. Just maybe they'd be a little bit late to the party. And once they did, they would kind of stop with all the rhetoric. What I didn't notice, and I think Russia, Ukraine hurt quite a bit, is that when oil prices spiked from from the higher than they already were, obviously from the war, and gas prices spiked, and food prices spiked, that's the kind of stuff that your typical consumer and your typical you know voter sees and feels very very quickly, and I think it it changed the Fed's mentality, or the Fed at least started to think like, okay, our main goal now has to be to crush this inflation. You know, they want to, you know, Powell thinks he's, you know, Volcker and he's going to be like the hero that steps in there and, you know, does the right thing by hiking rates really high and crushing inflation and helping everybody out and and whatever. So I think that's where I miss, you know, misjudge the, their resolve to be able to actually come in and, and do what they're doing. So we'll see if they keep going. I mean, the market is still claiming and they're still claiming there's a lot of hiking left to do, but you see what's happening with stocks already and, you know, real estate because interest rates are going up. So, you know, I think the next few months will still be interesting to watch. So let's talk about like how interest rates actually, you know, hit people, right? How, how did like, why does changing a number about the way that banks work? My understanding, um, and we, this is a, a great t- way to segue into your expertise in real estate is um, that if you raise the interest rate and you make it a little bit more expensive to get a mortgage, somebody instead of over the 30 years, um, uh, they maybe increase the price of that by twenty, thirty thousand dollars. It's not huge when you're talking about five bips, uh, the, but um, but it you know it's substantial. So once that happens, then you start slowing down the number of housing transactions that happen because you just price some of the houses that people wanted to buy out of the market. There's now um, there is a limit to how much money people have in their budgets to how much they can spend. And so suddenly you have a small percentage of houses not selling um, in the way that they were before. And what people don't often realize is every time a house sells, a lot of people make money on that transaction because you've got two real estate agents that both get paid out of that. You get a title company that's done the work to make sure, is this the house you say that it is? Then you've got uh, people coming in to do inspections. You've got plumbers coming in. Once somebody gets into the house, they want to get new carpet. So they're going to Home Depot and they're buying other things. And then, you know, you've got moving trucks for two different people and then another house transacts because somebody's got to move somewhere. And so the, the reason I go through explaining all of that is just changing who can buy what houses by a tiny amount impacts millions of transactions that happen. Um, where else, what am I missing in that? And, and where else does um, changes to interest rates show up in people's lives? 
So that's definitely true. And I mean, most of my real estate background is on the more commercial side, apartment buildings, things like that. Single family can be driven by a lot different things. And, and, but you're absolutely right that, you know, it touches a little bit of everything. Um, but how it's also very, very complicated. And we don't live in a, a world like the, the phrase that economic or economic professors like to use is ceteris paribus, which means all else being equal. If one change happens, what else happens? But the reality is we don't live in a world like that. We live in this world where everything is chaos and rapidly changing and, you know, stochastically moving around and impacting each other. So, um, you know, a lot of different things are happening all at one time. So, yeah, absolutely. When, when interest rates go up on the margin, it's harder to afford a house and you would expect less houses to be bought or prices to have to adjust. That being said, um, there's so much demand out there for housing right now and there's so little supply of housing that people are going to just pull every lever they can to figure out a way to continue buying a house right now. Um, and w- the big thing is when you look at sort of the millennial generation, demographically speaking, a lot of people don't realize this, but the two largest population segments in the country are like the 25 to 29 year olds and then like the 24 to 28 year olds. Um, and the and the early 30s are, are really big, too. And the average first time home buyer age is like 32 years old. So you've got the biggest chunk of the population that we've ever had on a numbers basis, on a percentage basis, it was still the boomers. But on a numbers basis, you have more people than ever just now coming into the age where they're going to want to start buying houses. And at the same time, inventory supplies of existing houses are as low as they've ever been and they haven't recovered at all. So, you know, anytime a house comes up, people are trying to figure out some way to buy it because, you know, it's also pretty inelastic demand, right? When you're like a young person, if you've got a family on the way or something, like you don't want to live in your in-law's basement forever. Like that sucks. You're not going to do that for any longer than you need to. Uh, So you're going to try to find a way to get out there. Maybe you're going to buy a little bit less of a house, but, you know, there's this sort of floor in demand for housing that it's not going to you know, the higher interest rates, in my opinion, aren't going to cause a crash unless the interest rates go to like, you know, 12% or something crazy. But but this isn't the great financial crisis where it was banks not knowing what they had and like these horrible loans on everyone's balance sheets that, that nobody wanted to touch. Um, and so they kind of shut off the liquidity piece. This is, you know, there's like fundamental demand out there so that anytime there is a dip, I think it gets bought by those people that need those houses. Um, but you know, other other areas of the economy that might be impacted by interest rates, you know, I guess when you talk about interest rates in the Fed, the other thing you got to talk about is the, the term interest rates is kind of a bit of a misnomer because there's interest rates for everything. And some of them are related and some of them aren't, right? So when the Fed raises the short-term interest rate, that affects people that borrow with short-term rates and people that borrow, you know, to do a carry trade, like borrow short, lend long kind of stuff or like a mortgage. Explain that. What do you mean? You're starting to get into more complex areas. So, yeah. So, if you're going to, you know, certain fact areas of the economy or certain like hedge funds will, all they'll literally do is like borrow short term money really cheap and then borrow money and like leverage that up and then let, lend the money or buy bonds at, you know, 2%. So if, so if the yield curve is really steep and the Fed funds rate and the three month treasury is, you know, 50 basis points and the 10 year treasury is 300 basis points, you can essentially borrow money short term and just keep rolling it over and lend it at 3% and leverage that up and you can make 8, 9, 10, 12% gains on that every year. When the Fed flattens the yield curve by raising the short end of the, of the curve, that trade kind of goes away. Um, you, know, intra, you know, real estate, there's t- several loans within real estate. Some people do like long-term fixed rate loans where they'll price something off of a 10-year treasury. Those people aren't going to be affected as much as the people that are, are pricing their loans off of, you know, the SOFR rate, S-O-F-R rate, which is essentially just a short-term 
variable rate. So when that one moves with the Fed, those people are going to get hit really hard, whereas the people that have sort of that fixed rate debt aren't. So it's it's much more complicated and, and like there's a lot of different ways that it can impact you. Um, but at the end of the day, what really happens is the most interest rate sensitive stuff gets hurt the most and the least interest rate sensitive stuff kind of just kind of goes along with its business. So you're in commercial real estate, which is a fascinating thing. If you're starting to sell buildings that are, um, you know, renting office space or uh, um, like it's really hard. You, you really have to make a guess about what do you think is going to happen in the world right now? Because you have to ask yourself like, OK, um, people were working from home. Now businesses want them to come back. Will they come back? What sort of offices do they want? How much are they willing to spend? So what's going on from your perspective in the commercial office space? Yeah, office isn't something that I've been too focused on. It's a lot of apartments, storage, uh, medical office, um, industrial, that kind of stuff. Um, keeping it, we do keep an eye on the office market. Obviously, it's just it's one of those things where I think there's going to be a lot of turmoil, which also means there's going to be a lot of opportunity, right? I think businesses are probably not going to get rid of office altogether, but all indications are that like a hybrid work is is here to stay. So, you know, on the positive side of things, you know, people that really understand you know, the, the employer base in their area and what they want and what they're looking for and how they're going to attract people to come back to the office. I think there's some interesting opportunities to, you know, find like a suburban office complex that's closer to where people are working from home that maybe you're going to have people come in two or three days a week and you want to renovate that and make it an exciting place to work where there's more like entertainment options and places to hang out and that kind of stuff. Um, I think you'll kind of start to see that trend. But you know, I, I do worry that sort of the central business district, you know, dense office space is just there's just not going to be nearly the kind of demand for that as there as there was in the past. It's fascinating. It's going to change literally the shape of the United States, in my opinion. And right. one of the most interesting parts that you mentioned about, um, you know, people doing hybrid work from home. Well, all that class B office space. So for people that aren't into real estate, I, I just got a crash course in it because we were looking to build out a new office, a new studio. So we're looking at space and there's really a, a giant gulf between what's considered A and then below that B and then lower than that. And the, and the letters just indicate how are the amenities? What's the quality? You know, if you go in to rent a space or you're going to have a bunch of uh, you know, carpet problems and is the infrastructure good and do they have security people? It's it's a little bit nebulous what the difference is between A, B and C. But right now, at least in St. Louis, what I have seen is they're trying to build up as much A or A plus as they possibly can because they assume if you're going to have office space, you're going to want to make it as attractive as possible to your people, but you don't need that much of it. So you have the same office budget in your, in your, in your, um, in the budget line. And you now are shrinking that down um, for the number of offices that you have. So the quality of offices goes way up. But then the the all the people that are owning the buildings with class B office space in St. Louis are saying, we're not putting another dime into this. We're having trouble getting over 50% occupancy. And so like the then they don't fill those spaces up, which means you have less money to invest into those spaces. So they continue to degrade very rapidly. And, and I think many of them are hoping somebody's going to come along, buy the building, knock it down, and put something up new. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. Is that what you, I mean, I know you're not in the commercial office space, but is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I think so. And it's going to depend on the markets as well, right? And who's attracting workers to where. So each market, each city is going to be a little bit different. But yeah, I think 
what will probably happen is that those class B and C office players, they're, you know, a few of them that are in the right spots are probably going to get bought up and, and renovated and made into nicer class A product. But a lot of them are probably going to have to just hold on by the skin of their teeth for as long as they can until it just doesn't make sense anymore. And then when the basis for that building is low enough for somebody else to come in and tear it down or do something else with it and, and they can make money on it, that's probably what's going to happen, um, which obviously is going to cause some pain for some people, but it's also going to allow for some really new, cool, exciting stuff to happen and uh, over time. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And, um, you know, if, if some talented people jump into that space just for those reasons, because you have this like cool blank canvas of like, Hey, I've got this really cool piece of real estate. It's downtown. It's in a cool spot. The demand for office just isn't there, but like what other kind of cool stuff can we do here? So it'll be fun to watch. So let's talk about your area where you really do shine. You were talking about places like um, dental offices, kind of suburban industrial areas. T tell me a little bit more about where you focus and how is that market looking? Yeah, so a lot of what I look at is, you know, multifamily and then self-storage are probably the two biggest ones right now. Um, both of those have been just completely on fire over the past couple of years. Um, and I'm still generally pretty pretty bullish on both sectors, but it's definitely kind of shifting to sort of a new, new market dynamic a little bit where um, you know, rent growth is still strong and in a lot of our a lot of the best markets it's gonna stay strong, but you know, I don't think 10, 12% rent growth is going to keep happening in multifamily properties very much longer. So, um, and 10, 12, that's being conservative. I mean, I know I got a buddy that's in the real estate market and he's raising rents 40% still has no problem renting those, those, uh, those rents. So whether they were depressed before or what it is, but it's, so you're being very conservative in that number. Yeah, I mean, some markets like Phoenix, you know, 20, 30% is, is definitely something that people have seen too. So, but, you know, longer term rent growth in the two to four or 5% range is in, in good markets is going to be what you're seeing. So, you know, I think there are some people that probably got too far out over their skis, you know, on borrowing short term money and assuming that rents were going to go up 15, 20%. And when, you know, they renovate the, the property and that doesn't come true, they might get into some trouble. So there may be some, you know, some distressed assets and some, ability for people to maybe get a good deal by people that kind of screwed that up. Um, but I think overall, sort of the long-term fundamentals, again, kind of talking about the demographic profile that we see, a lot of people want to get out onto their own. Those people, you know, for better or worse, because houses are so expensive and because interest rates are high, some of those people just are going to be renters, right? And, and I think you're going to see a shift in what they prefer as well. So like a lot more single family rental units or, or apartment complexes that are that are built like single family where they have kind of small single family homes or duplex homes and things like that uh, getting a lot of attention and an area that I really like a lot for that purpose to kind of tap into that same tailwind right millennials are aging they might not want to live in a 600 square foot shoebox in the city but they are still going to be renters so if they can get a, a bigger unit with a garage and maybe a little yard space or something I think that area is is really interesting as well. So it's, but you know, it's going to be one of those things where you just have to pay close attention to where the trends are going and not, not invest in a deal that requires that kind of crazy rent growth to continue, right? You have to give yourself some cushion, give yourself some, some time on your loan so that, you know, the bank doesn't come knocking before you've had a chance to kind of realize your growth prospects. But overall, I think, you know, real estate's a pretty good place to be when we have what we have now, which is sort of that slower economy. And then inflation starting to head, head back down. So what's it like for you right now putting deals together? Is it, um, it seems like there are a lot of people that want to take their cash out of things like the stock market and be able to put it into hard assets. Is that what you're seeing? 
Yeah, it seems like real estate's still pretty strong demand. I, you know, I think some of the craziness has come out of the market there again, too. You know, a year ago, what you'd see is a deal would hit the market and every buyer was trying to preempt it and take it off the market before, you know, they even called for offers and every every offer was going, you know, what didn't matter what the broker whispered as the potential price, the prices were going higher than that. Everybody was trying to offer, you know, all of their earnest money to go hard day one, which means even if you back out of the deal and due diligence, the seller gets to keep your money. Like everybody was doing whatever they could to get deals and people are still being aggressive, but you know, now you're hearing more and more about, you know, a few less buyers at the table, a few less buyers, you know, doing the crazy stuff. So, um, Definitely, you know, no signs of anything like crashing, but you're, but things are coming back to earth a little bit. So, something to keep an eye on, you know. And if that demand keeps falling off, maybe there will be a, a meaningful price adjustment. But I don't see anything, you know, that would suggest that there's going to be blood in the streets anytime soon. So I think right now it's very easy to be a person that feels like the economy is um, headed over a cliff, right? It's it's I, I like I personally can feel my own kind of chicken little nature coming out saying, <laughs> "Hey, uh, you know, protect the money that's there. It, it's better uh, not to try and grab these last few percentage points of gain. Better to protect your wealth." How are you viewing the world, and like, uh, what should people be looking at that maybe they're overlooking when they have that kind of pessimistic look? I mean, I tend to be the same way. And, you know, I, I have done a lot of research into kind of what does well under what circumstances. So when you have both a slowing GDP number and slowing inflation numbers, that's when things usually tend to be the worst for risk on assets like stocks and things like that. And I think that's what you're seeing now. Um, I am optimistic by nature and, and I want to be bullish. I think bullish people are the ones that have the most success in life because they see opportunities and they go chase them down and make things happen. Um, but right now we are at a, at a bit of a turning point there where you, where I think you can be patient. I don't think you need to, um, you know, go hide in a hole forever and not do anything, especially on the real estate front. Um, but I think that there could be, you know, if the fed stays really hawkish now, you know, this for the same things that I've been talking about with inflation, uh, the 2021 numbers from public publicly traded companies, the earnings were as good as they've ever been, and their profit margins were as high as they've ever been. But now that inflation is also squeezing their profit margins, and now they're going to be reporting earnings up against the best quarters they ever had at the highest profit margins they ever had. So, And we're already seeing it with the companies that are reporting now. As the year rolls on, more and more of them are just going to be coming out saying, like, look, we're just not making as much money as we used to make. And you know, the market's going to react to that. And I think it's already kind of discounting some of that coming down the pipe. So my personal hypothesis with the corporations is the thing that is not being reported is during, you know, COVID hits, people get sent home. You're nearing retirement age. You now are having to adapt to, to using all the levers that used to work for you. If you're at the middle upper management, even, even upper management, where it's relationships, it's how you talk over lunches with people. It's how you get together. You make things happen. It starts realizing like, hey, I'm going to be in a new paradigm, probably better just for me to retire. So those people, after about a year of COVID, start retiring. And now the corporations are saying, well, we've got to promote people, only they've been way lagging on how many people they've promoted over time. So you have these young people in the areas you're talking about that are looking to buy houses. And now these people are getting bumps that are two to three levels above where they were before. So they're getting way big paycheck increases, 
but that the hidden secret to most of corporate America is that the jobs that people are doing at this upper level management is not what you can write down in a job description. It is complicated. It's relationships. It's figuring out how to make the gears work even when you can't write down everything. And so now you've had people in those positions for about a year and a half that were handed these things as people parachuted out the back of the company um, and they hadn't been doing long-term succession planning. And it would take about a year for problems to start showing up, for supply chain issues where the guy that used to know who to call at the trucking company to get things resolved, how do you get that, um, you know, that, that one press to be able to keep working even after the hydraulics are out, those people aren't there anymore. And I think you're going to start seeing corporations have massive issues um, that it's difficult to show up on an expense report, it's difficult to report on this, how does that show up? But that the succession planning um, things that they didn't do years ago are going to really show up at the exact same time that you're right. Not only are they bringing in the highest profits and then inflation starts slowing things down, you're going to start seeing like, oh, all of these things stacked on top of each other. So my guess is large capitalized um, corporations are going to be in big trouble in the next six months. How does that sit with you, that hypothesis? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, I agree with the conclusion and I never really thought about that issue of the talent, not, you know, the managerial talent not really being up to snuff. I think that only adds on to kind of the stuff that I had already been thinking about in terms of them just being up against really tough, you know, margin compression and, and tough comps and, and then the economy reverting back to a slower position. And I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, and then I think if you just kind of take another step back and you look at like big picture, what's going on here. I know you had, um, Lacey Hunt, who, like, if there is a such thing as an econ crush, I mean, that guy's got to be it for me. <laughs> He's awesome. But um, he won't come on during moments of instability. I've known Lacey <laughs> for years now. And anytime I write him when things are crazy, he's like, I'll wait till things slow down a little bit. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like him a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I really agree with his his idea that, you know, what what's happening right now, you know, our work, working age population, you know, 15 to 64 is shrinking to flat you know it's not going down like crazy but it's not growing uh productivity is is as bad as it's ever been um in terms of productivity growth for each employee that is working uh you know the birth rates are low so at the end of the day an economy really only grows as fast as its workforce is growing and as fast as the, the productivity of those workers is growing so all of that stuff is, is pointing in the same direction which is that you know what you can expect sort of over a long term if unemployment's pretty low is that our economy is going to grow it one to two, two and a half percent. I mean, that's about as good as what's baked in the cake for us. To the extent it's going to grow more than that, it's going to grow more than that because the unemployment rate was high and it's coming back down. But once it's kind of at low levels, that's really all you can expect. The only way that that grows from there is if you get more workers coming in somehow, like immigration or you know a big population boom so that 20 years from now it goes up or or you, you find some way to make people way more productive than they already are, which is, you know, maybe some technology or, or training or education or something. But there's really nothing on the horizon on either of those fronts that would suggest that, like, yeah, we've got a big structural change in what's happening. So when, you know, when stock prices are valued in such a way that, like, the economy is going to grow like crazy and then sort of economic gravity takes hold again, I think it's only natural that the valuations associated with that are going to adjust. So that's kind of what I see happening. Um, but, you know, I would just call myself a temporarily, you know, napping bull or something, because I do think <laughs> I'm not like a perma bear. That's always going to think, you know, you just got to stay out of the market because you're going to get your face ripped off. But like, I, I would love a chance to you know put more money to work 
in in more risky assets when the time comes. I just think maybe you know you can still see it get worse before it gets better. There's something about the demographics explanation um, that that uh, people use when they're describing where did all the laborers go that feels really unsatisfying because it's the you, you know like where did all the servers go? Where did all the people that worked at the grocery store go? Where did I, I mean you can imagine like with labor you know construction electricians plumbers they got plenty of work you know so much demand. But the other ones that were more stable, like my local coffee shop, not very far from my house, maybe a half mile, the like they have to shut down their their like uh, seating area every once in a while because they can't get enough workers. And you could say, well, that's because they're not paying enough, or and maybe that's the issue. But where did these workers go? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think some of them probably did get bid away to higher paying jobs because everything was so short that you know everybody probably lowered their hiring standards a little bit so you could get. You know, you could go from making 12 bucks an hour at a cash register to maybe making 17 or 18 or 20 at a construction site or something. And then another piece of it, which you would expect to return back to normal here over the next several months as well, is that a lot of people just left the workforce and just decided not to work. So, like, if you look at forgetting about the unemployment rate for a second, which is low, if you just look at the number of people that are working, just the raw number, forgetting about the unemployment, which says, like, are they looking for work and are they full-time or part-time or whatever, the raw number of people working is is still below the pre-pandemic peak, or it might be like just getting back to it. And if you were to sort of trend the pre-pandemic numbers and then look at how far below we are that trend line, we're probably six, seven, eight million jobs below that. So there's still, even though the unemployment rate is low, there's still probably six or eight million people not working that would otherwise be working had it not been for COVID. So a lot of that is just when you think about the the sheer amount of money that was made available to a lot of people, you know, when you're a, a when you're working a cash register or you're doing one of those jobs, like those aren't fun jobs. They're not great jobs. Um, obviously, people can take a lot of pride in what they're doing in any job, I believe. But if you're not making all that much money to begin with, and now you can go, you can get your $400 a week unemployment benefit, you can get your $600 a week enhanced unemployment benefit, you can get a couple hundred dollars a month in child tax credits, you can get a stimulus check for a few grand every so often, and nobody can kick you out of your apartment if you decide you don't want to pay rent anymore. Like, it's it's the smart move not to work because you're making a few thousand bucks a month that can cover your rent or anything else that you need. And you can stay home with your family. You can do what you want to do for a while. So I think a lot of that was, you know, when all that stuff was available to people, they were just making the rational decision that anybody would make. Like if I could replace my income and not have to go to work, not have to pay for gas, pay for dry cleaning, deal with my boss, do all that stuff. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to hang out for a while. So I think that legacy is, is still hanging around with some people, but you would think that now as economic reality sets back in that you, those people start coming back into the labor force trying to find, uh, you know, new sources of income. But I think that is a, an important piece of it that a lot of people didn't consider. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny when I look at the amount of stimulus that people got, I know that my own personal spending is is probably wildly higher than somebody that's making $15 an hour as a, as a cashier. But it did not appear to me. I mean, how long can $2,000 last? I mean, it's is that, is that a month of work? Is that three months of work? I mean, even if it's free and it's non, it's, I mean, I actually think it was taxed, but at that, at that level of income, probably not. Right. I, it, to me, the, the stimulus and the, the amount of money they were handed out seemed like 
way below what it would take to to take somebody completely out of the workforce. But you know that it's been a long time since I've been making fifteen dollars an hour. So I I I also understand that I don't have a great perspective on this from what it looks like at that level. Right. No, that's a good point. But I mean, if you think about it, like, okay, so let's just make a hypothetical couple with two kids, right? So there's four people and they live in a 200, uh, two bedroom apartment and it's a thousand bucks a month for their rent, right? Well, if both parents go on unemployment, there's about 800 bucks a week. That's a weekly number. If you get the enhanced unemployment benefits, you know, I think it was 600, then it went down to four or something like that. So let's just say it's another four each. So now you're at 1600 bucks a week coming from that. And then if you get the child tax credits that came through for two kids, that was probably another 600 bucks a month. Right. So now you're you're talking about $60,000 a year. Right. So on $60,000 a year, like you can, you can make your rent payment. You can have a little food like, and, and anybody would do it. If I was in that similar situation, it's stupid to go to work. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to spend all that time away from my family and and doing things that I don't want to do when I can, you know, you know, kind of replace that for a while. So, um, you know, I think it was that unemployment piece and the enhanced unemployment piece that really allowed people to stick around for a while because it wasn't just the couple grand in stimulus. It was kind of everything all all together at once. So um, I wonder that, if watching the workers disappear uh, had any impact on people that were originally advocating for universal basic income, because it seems to me that those people really believed that you could both hand out money and because the people that were advocating it for it the most seem to me to be college educated people, right? They've got these uh, white collar jobs. They're able to, um, you know, work from home. And so they're saying, oh, I want to be magnanimous and make sure everybody has the money that they need. But they also want to be able to order their their groceries and have it delivered. And they want to have somebody be able to service their car and they want to be able to, you know, do all these other things. I wonder if any of them had the realization that the that if you hand out free money, people will stop working because they're working for money. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. I mean, those people, you know, look, they're good hearted people and they want what's best for people. So, you know, I'm not going to bash them for, you know, wanting what they think is best for somebody else. And I can understand the sentiment behind that. But my experience is that a lot of those people also are so convinced that they're right about things that it couldn't possibly be that they that they made that mistake. So what do you think about some of the other um, fiscal policies that people are trying to put forward? Like, uh, hey, maybe we should absolve all student loan debt. What, what would that do to the economy if you wiped out all federal, all federally guaranteed student loan debt? Well, I think, you know, over the short term and for a certain subsection of people, it would be great. But it's like anything else that the government does. It's that the government really can't do anything that benefits everybody on the whole. They can really only take something from somebody and give it to somebody else, right? The government doesn't earn money. The government doesn't produce anything. doesn't add any value to society. It just shuffles stuff around. So every dollar that they take to pay off somebody's student loans is a dollar they have to take from somebody else that produced it. So whether they're going to borrow it and inflate it away later or tax it away later, or they're going to tax it now, that money has to come from somewhere. So on balance, it's not going to help everybody out. It's going to make things slightly worse for everybody because we're going to have a little bit more debt and a little bit less productive economy, right? Because the more debt you have, and Lacey Hunt again, the more debt you have, the worse the economy gets, the slower the economy grows, um, and the kind of the worse off everybody is in aggregate. But it's great for a politician because they can say, look at this awesome thing that I did to kind of solve somebody's problem. So whether you're talking about student loan forgiveness, or you're talking about stimulus payments, or you're talking about, you know, whatever the the government program du jour is going to be, um, it just doesn't have the type of impact that sort of the 
the Keynesian economist wants you to believe it has. There's the fiscal multiplier, which is, you know, the number that they'll tell you, like, if the government spends $1, it's going to create $5 in the economy or, or something along those lines. That fiscal multiplier is maybe one. It's maybe less than one. So that means if the government takes a dollar from me and gives it to you, the net benefit is, is basically zero. It just it just transfers when the fiscal multiplier is at one. It means it didn't really do anything. So, um, you know, you can argue from a political standpoint or a moral standpoint how much of that kind of stuff the government's going to do. But from an economic standpoint, it, it there's really not much on the fiscal side that the government can do that can really make things better by by taxing and spending. Really what they need to do is get, you know, get the budget under control, get that debt to GDP down and let more of the, a bigger share of the economy go toward the private sector where it's allocated based on price discovery and, and resources being sent to the place where they can do the most good for the most people. I, I agree with you that uh, about your, and I actually think it's very well put the way you described how the government actually works and that they don't add value. They're just moving things from one place to another. My sense on the student loan, um, if you absolve that, you will see even further inflation because it will be like you've just given a stimulus check to everybody that has student loans for $150 a month or $200 or $500, whatever that um, amount that you were allocating out of your budget from cash um, to paying that bill, now all of a sudden you're going to have that in in your you know bank account. And it, again, would be foolish for people to keep it in cash because it would just be burned away to inflation. So likely they will um, um, use it on consumables, right? They'll they'll improve their lives. They'll they'll get a better car. They'll move into a nicer apartment. They'll um, be able to afford food more. Like I, they may make very rational, very positive decisions for their lives. But that then you've you've done nothing to create more value in the economy. You've just added more dollars chasing the same amount of goods. And so for me, that that will be in every single um, crevice of our entire economy will be people with more money that initially might give you that little bump, but ultimately will make it far more expensive for everyone. And and in my opinion, inflation is just a tax. It's just an, another way of describing a tax. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, and that's exactly probably what would happen. And then, and then obviously, again, going back to sort of those fundamental underpinnings, since there are not a, a new wave of people coming in and, and growing the workforce base and people aren't getting more productive, then, you know, after that short term little boost that you get, it all kind of fades away again. So, you know, you, that economic gravity is just, it's going to be there and it's going to, it's going to pull us back to, you know, where, where things are headed kind of no matter what they do over the short term. And that the same thing is true with the federal reserve, you know, how much money they decide they're going to print or whatever else. Like you can't really escape the ultimate economic gravity that, that we're facing. So, so you mentioned Lacey Hunt and uh, you seem to have um, a very sophisticated take on the, on the economy. Where, where do you get your news? What is your, what are you taking in in order to be able to come to the conclusions that you have right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I follow a lot of people, and I and I do I try to do a decent amount of my own work in terms of like getting into numbers and and trying to see what relationships exist and what don't. Uh, I try to do a lot of reading. You know, I, I dug in really deeply into sort of the Austrian economist viewpoint a lot. You know, with Hayek and Mises and some of those guys, and don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I think that was was great. And I've read a bunch of Milton Friedman's books and that kind of stuff. And and now I do a lot more just kind of. Uh, following, you know, Twitter profiles, you know, following people that I think are really smart writers, you know, don't miss anything Dr. Hunt does. Um, John Hussman, HussmanFunds.com, he puts out a, a market comment every every so often, probably about monthly. He's really good about, like, the Fed and the economy and understanding what's really going on with a lot of that stuff as well. 
Um, and then really it's just kind of like you, you know, you just find a fun rabbit hole to go down and you, and you read about it and learn about it and talk to interesting people like, and, and just kind of go from there. So it's just kind of a fun, a fun sort of exploration activity for me, I guess you'd say. So for the listeners of this podcast, uh, Austrian economics is probably where many of them, um, maybe not where they're exactly lie, but I would say a lot of the, the audience here is somewhere on that, you know, Hayek, real dollars, real value. What, what exactly, um, do you have anything that comes to mind when you say you don't agree with it, that, that, uh, you could call to mind that would be worth talking about? Well, I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think one of the big things is that the Austrians, I don't think they're necessarily wrong about monetary policy, but I think the way that it works now versus the way that it worked when those guys were writing about it is a little bit different. And I think, I think admittedly, the, the biggest thing that Austrians and, and I believed as well um, that was kind of wrong was that when the Fed started printing money after the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, was that we were going to have this massive hyperinflation. I'm like, hey, why didn't we actually have it? And I think the reason is that when you think about how the Fed operates or how money is actually created, I think there's kind of a, an interesting kind of wrinkle there that people maybe didn't consider that might explain it. And that is that, you know, when the Fed buys bonds, what's actually happening you got to kind of trace through like the life cycle of the bond in the first place, right? So think about bonds and bank reserves and currency deposits all as government liabilities. Like they're all in the same bucket. They're a liability of the federal government. Some of them have different characteristics. Some of them pay some interest, so their duration is longer, but they're all sort of a government liability, right? So what really creates a new government liability is when the treasury spends at a deficit and issues bonds, right? They take money from me, take a thousand bucks from me, they give it to you and they say, so there's just a transfer, but now they also give me a, a treasury bond for a thousand dollars. So there's a thousand dollars in new government liabilities that exist in the world that didn't before. Obviously the banking system can create money too, but we're just talking about the Fed for now. But now the Fed comes along and decides they're, they're going to do QE, right? Well, what they're now doing is they're buying my bond from me and they're replacing that with a reserve in the banking system and then a deposit in my in my bank account, right? So all, what they've actually done is they've swapped out my bonds for this zero duration, you know, a future liability that had duration and that I was willing to hold over a longer period of time. And they've replaced that with something that has no duration whatsoever and no, no interest rate. So now, like, just because my save, like I saved that money because I produced more than I consumed and I wanted to save it somewhere. Now, just because my savings has been converted to a different form doesn't mean I'm going to go out and buy like Cheerios and toothpaste and diapers with it, right? So like it's not going to go into the CPI because it's it's savings and savings is going to remain savings in some form. Like you don't change, you don't change what you're like, what the savings is going to do just because it's changed form. Like you need more people to actually want to buy consumable goods for inflation and in the CPI to go up. So what happens is, I get my money, now I have it and I want to save, but now I got to find something that has a yield. So now I flip that to somebody else, right? And I say, hey, I'll take your bonds or I'll take your stock or I'll take whatever. But now that person has that money. They're a saver too. They don't want to take, you know, they don't sell their stock so they can buy underwear. They're, they're doing it again because they want to save. So now the more the Fed buys, the more they're converting those bonds into zero duration, like hot potatoes is what John Hushman calls them. And those people just have, and everybody has to hold those at some point. Like even if I buy stock from you, well, now you've got to hold them and you don't want them. So you go buy stock. So that's what happens is like that, that money starts chasing around assets in the economy more and more. And that's how you get, you know, really inflated real estate prices, really inflated stock prices, because 
you know, everybody is trying to exchange that money for something else. Um, yeah, you're describing in it's a totally different, well, not a totally different context, but the one of my biggest concerns about the economy that seems like every, everybody just says, oh, this is just a natural part of it is uh, 401ks. And, you know, the, the big problem with this is every single month or every single week, I, I guess, you get this like pump of blood into that system, right? People take a percentage of their their wages and they say, I don't want that in cash. I don't want it in my checking account. I certainly don't want it in my savings account. Put it over here in the 401k. And not only does that artificially give the stock market um, this inflation and just constantly keeping the price up, no matter how much money comes out the bottom. And uh, of course, eventually, if you have more people retiring than you do pumping into that, then you run into some problems. But for many years, it's been going like this. Plus, by making it into a 401k to tax shelter it, by pushing the time horizon out for when people can withdraw that, you're now changing their risk profiles completely. Because yeah, you can sell any one individual stock, but you can't get it out of that system. And so uh, to me, this is um, one of the things that isn't considered when people are talking about this is just how much of uh, the risk calculation people are making is about time horizons. And we have artificial time horizons that are imposed upon us because of the amount that you would have to pay in capital gains if you took it out early or, or penalties for removing it early. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I mean, just to, I guess, put a cap on the last piece really quick, like from the Federal Reserve perspective, I think that's why that money doesn't necessarily juice the CPI, but it does juice financial assets for that same reason, because savers continue to save, right? They're not just going to consume because their savings kind of change form. So I think that's where the Austrians maybe didn't quite get it right or didn't see that coming, maybe because they just saw money supply going up. And that's why if you look at like the velocity of money, it goes down just as fast as like the M2 goes up because you're just not seeing that money stick around in the where it gets calculated in the economy. It just goes off and swirls around in the financial markets instead. Um, so, but what you said reminded me of somebody who's a really smart guy. You can find him on Twitter as well. He's done a lot of good interviews. His name is Mike Green. Uh, I think his handle is like Prof Plum, uh, Prof Plum 99, something like that. Um, but he's really, really sharp on, you know, exactly what you said. And his whole take is that those 401ks and, and even just ETFs that can trade in non-taxable accounts, uh, the Vanguard kind of Blackstone. Yeah, the index the funds. Yeah, right, yeah. All those index funds. Those are completely passive and they are they literally just follow the dumbest formula ever which is if you give me cash i buy if you request cash from me i sell and it's just an algorithm that does that so anytime you get an inflow from that you get they'll just whatever the the ask price is in the market they'll just take it so there is like and as the balance of those funds versus like value investors that are actually making decisions based on the value of a company as that mix changes and more and more stuff goes passive you can literally just have a market that you know is so so much less liquid than you would think because there's only a small pool of people that are actually trading and buying and selling at any given time and this massive chunk of the market that is just basing it on flows and if flows are coming in they just buy 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 so you can have like these parabolic moves upward and then if for any reason somebody decides they want to sell in their 401k or these passive funds you can have the exact same problem happen in reverse where it just goes completely the other way and somebody asks for their money out of a vanguard fund and they just sell they just whatever the whatever the the ask price is they just take it they just take it until you know until they're out of well, money. Let's slow this down for people that aren't in, and don't not involved in index funds. And two years ago, I brought this up with a podcast guest, and I got so much pushback from this because I was saying, 
look, it's fine if you have these passive investors. But to explain it, an index fund is where you say, I'm not going to try and find the needle in the haystack of who's going to you know, outperform expectations. And so I'm not going to try and buy one stock. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go buy an index fund that is a compilation of a whole bunch of stocks. Maybe it's um, um, a representation of the market. So maybe it's a certain amount of the large market cap, the Apples, IBMs, these kind of companies. And then you have smaller or mid-size. You could also have index funds that are comprised of a little bit of pharmaceutical, a little bit of uh, technology, a little bit of industrial. And you put all those together. And instead of somebody buying a share of individual stocks, they're buying a share of a compilation of, of these stocks. And then those just move as a as a basket, like the s and I'm buying the S&P 500. I'm buying all of them. So as long as the market overall does well, I'm going to do well. And if it goes down, my losses are hedged. Now, this is a brilliant strategy, and the numbers prove it out. If only a certain number of people are using this strategy, which the um, oh, what was the guy's name? Um, um, uh, people are screaming at their their podcast right now. The guy that started Vanguard. Um, Vogel, right? Yeah, Vogel. That's right. When he when he put this together, when only a certain number of people are doing this, this is fantastic, right? They're okay. figuring out how to ride the wave of people that are really deeply following the market. But if everybody starts putting their money into this, now the waves that slosh around in that market just just could get totally out of control. And in my opinion, there are people that strongly disagree with me about this. But I have had serious reservations about index funds for years now. But people like the sentiment up until recently has been index funds are the only smart choice. Yeah, and I would recommend people go find Mike Greed and listen to him talk about it because he's like a hundred times smarter than I am on this. But I think like the good a good way to think about it is like let's just assume that there's a hundred investors and that makes up the entire market, right? And then five of them become index fund investors, right? And every time somebody gives money to their index, they have to buy. Well, there's ninety five percent of the market that they could buy from, and those people are actually liquid in the market where they're willing to buy or sell at a given price. Well, so they buy, and now there are fewer of those people and more money in the index fund. And now, so as long as those flows keep coming into the index fund, they're going to take a larger and larger percentage of that whole market, right? So and then now assume at some point, now it's 60-40, 60% index funds, 40% value funds. And prices just keep going up. And the more prices go up, the less people that actually buy stocks based on value are going to be buyers because they're, they don't buy at those higher prices. Well, the, 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 the more that proportion changes, the fewer people that are actually there willing to sell because the 60% is never selling. And now they all want to buy and they have to take whatever price they need to take to be willing to get it from the other 40. And then when there's 30%, it's even more. And then when there's 20, right? So like the more share that passive gets, the less liquid the other side of that trade is because they're all, they literally can't sell. The, the algorithm says do not sell unless you take money out. And then the same thing can happen in reverse. Like if anybody in large numbers decided that they want to pull money out of these passive funds, those passive funds don't have a manager that's sitting there thinking like, okay, what's the right price to take? Should I hold? Should I buy? Should I sell? They just sell and sell and sell and sell. And now there's 20% of people or, you know, and it's not this bad, but just to use the example, there's 20% of people that are willing to buy and 80% that all want to sell at the same time that are trying to sell to the 20, right? So the 20 just kind of let the price drop, drop, drop until they're willing to actually take it. So you can get like this massive ramp up and like a crazy free fall just from like the plumbing that's associated with these index funds. 
Well, I, I have got to say, man, when when Ben suggested you, I was like, all right, I'll go talk to an optimist. I had no idea, um, one, how eloquent you'd be. You've been absolutely great at explaining complex ideas, and I really love that you come from a different angle on things. So I'm really glad you came on. But uh, if people wanted to read some of your work, they wanted to find out more about you know your perspectives, where would they go to do that? Uh, I'd say just follow me on Twitter. Go to uh, Phil-McAllister at and, and check me out. I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing any of this for money. I'm not trying to get followers or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just having fun. I love talking about the stuff. I love meeting new people and hearing cool ideas. So I don't have anything to like sell you. I write a, a sub stack called macro meets real estate. But again, that's like spotty. I write when I want to, when I have a cool idea and like, you know, so I'm not, uh, you know, don't expect like a really great product out of me <laughs> at any given point, but uh, love to have conversations and meet exciting, you know, interesting people and, and, you know, look me up there and happy to chat with anybody. And what real estate market are you in if people were like, hey, I want that guy? Oh, uh, well, you know, I don't I, – I, my my work thing is kind of separate. This is kind of a personal thing. I'm not really here on behalf of that, so I kind of keep that as a separate thing. What region of the country are you in? Uh, we do a little bit of everything. We, we, we kind of stay away from the coasts and most of the northeast, but we're kind of a, a national player for the most part, yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, I am Phil McAllister. I'm so glad you came on. You will be a regular guest if you're willing to come back. Hey, it was super fun, man. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And yeah, happy to come back anytime.